Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Anne Hilleman had some very big shoes to fill when she stepped up to continue her father, Tony Hilleman's much-loved Joe and Jim Navajo Mysteries, an 18-book series adored by fans as well as admired by critics. Unusual that sometimes the fans love them and the critics don't. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler. And in Binge Reading this week, Anne talks about how she came to assume her father's mantle and write five more Navajo mysteries which have all become New York Times bestsellers. We've got three ebook copies of her latest book, The Tale Teller, to give away to three lucky readers. A mysterious anonymous donation, a precious artifact stolen, linked by a seemingly random murder. Enter the draw on the Joys of Binge Reading website giveaway page, that's thejoysofbingereading.com, or go to our Binge Reading Facebook page. You'll be able to enter the draw there as well. The draw closes on June 6, so don't delay. Now, here's Anne. Hello there, Anne, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Well, hello, Jenny. Thank you so much for asking me. Look, we're both in a global pandemic at the opposite sides of the world. And and I wonder how you are managing with social distancing. Has it made much of an impact on your life? Oh, yes and no. Um, I think anyone who's a writer tends to have some pretty strong introverted genes. And so in some ways, I've been glad to have an excuse to say, no, I can't go to lunch. No, I can't talk to your Kiwanis group, to your Rotary group, because uh, because of social distancing. Uh, and to just to have more time, quiet time to really focus on my writing. But the downside of that is I, I love to, I write about real places. And part of my process always has been going to the places that are in the book and then trying to talk to people who live there to get a real sense of what the community is like. And with the book I'm working on now, I, I had um, two big interviews set up right before uh, New Mexico, the state where I live, uh, was went on not exactly lockdown, but pretty darn close to it. And one of the interviews was at a school, and of course they were all closed. And the other was at a scientific facility that, and the person I was talking to did the public tours, so those were all closed. So that's been kind of a, a downside of it. But I think once things open up again, I'll be able to put those, those pieces together. So, I, and I miss my friends. And I miss, you know, being able to go out to dinner. But all in all, I think everyone, you know, we just have to all do what we can so we'll be done with this. So, yeah, yeah I guess that, that's a long answer to your short question. No, that, that's absolutely right. If, if we all do our bit, then hopefully... Um, you know, I heard somebody on the TV this morning say, well, it's going to be like this for the next two years or until we get a vaccine. And I guess none of us really wants to think of, of it that way, but it might be a little bit of a long journey. So, yeah. yeah. Look, well, I've got... Sorry, Dan. Oh, 
I was going to say, I've, I had some really sweet invitations this to do talks this spring. And of course, they were all canceled. And so I missed I missed that. But it's it's worth it. I mean, I have so many friends who are in the high risk group and I wouldn't have ever wanted to take a chance on anything happening to them. So I think we all have to do our part to just get through this. Yes. Look, you've got a unique story as a novelist because you've continued your father, Tony Hillerman's popular Navajo tribal series. Tony was a legend. His obit in the New York Times noted that he was a rare figure, a best-selling author who was adored by his fans, admired by fellow authors, and respected by critics. Tell us something of his legacy. Uh, well, my father started the uh, mystery series that people have have loved for a long time, uh, 50 years ago. It was, he came up with the character of Joe Lee Porn, Navajo detective. And in that first book, uh, really his, he hadn't intended to write a series about, about the, the Navajo Indians. He had always loved mysteries. And so his idea was that he would bring in this interesting character and do a setting that people weren't, weren't familiar with and that that would give his books a little, a little something different. And so uh, The Blessing Way uh, came out in uh, March 11th of 1970, 20, 70, uh, 50 years ago. And I mean, it's amazing. And, you know, then he wrote a book, a non-series book, but the he loved those Navajo characters. And so then he wrote the other 17 books in that series. And besides writing writing his books, he also uh, taught journalism and creative writing at the University of New Mexico and acted as a mentor to many uh, writers who were, were, were coming up and people who really needed encouragement. Um, uh, three, three of his books were turned into movies. He won many, many prizes for his mystery writing. And, you know, at the time, I, I, I had always been a big reader and I loved my dad and I loved reading his stories, but I didn't quite realize what a, I guess, what an icon, I guess you could use that word, what an icon he was in the mystery world until after he died. And then I saw like that tribute you mentioned in the New York Times all over the mystery world. And I got so many letters from people saying, I feel like I've lost a member of my family. You know, we really loved your father and we loved his stories. And uh, so, yeah, I think his legacy was really creating creating stories that brought brought to life uh, a part of the world that a lot of people had never thought about and humanized uh, characters, native characters that many people maybe had not ever thought of, or if they thought of them, they just thought of them as stereotypes. Yeah. So, and I think the other part of his legacy was his big heart. He was very generous, as I mentioned, in supporting other writers in offering to, to talk for free at schools, at universities, and making himself available for writers' conferences. So I could go on. I could take our whole time talking about my father's legacy. I just feel so enormously blessed and grateful to have had such a fine man as well as a fine writer as my father. So what gave you the idea to pick up on the series yourself? Well, I... 
I, my background was nonfiction. And so I had been working on a nonfiction book uh, about the places in the Navajo world that my father wrote about, places that he visited and loved. My husband and I, who's a, my husband's a professional photographer, he and I had spent, I guess about two years, traveling all through Navajo land, talking to people, taking photos. And so uh, I had, I was almost done with the book when my dad died. So uh, we finished, my husband and I finished the book and a year after my father's death, the book was published. And my husband and I did a little book tour to libraries and bookstores and we're talking about the book. And every time I would do the talk, the first or second or maybe third question would be, so are there any more books in the series? Was there something that your father was working on that was at the publisher, something another editor could finish, a, you know, a collection of short stories? And I would say, no, sorry, my dad really took care of business before he died. And then the, the person asking the question would say, Oh, I love those characters. I love those stories. Oh no, this is the worst news I've ever heard. And I heard that I heard that longing for those stories so many times. And at the same time, of course, I was dealing with my own grief at my father's death. And after a while, it dawned on me that just like those fans, besides the missing my father, I was thinking, and no, how can it be that there will be no more Jim Chi, Joe Leaphorn stories? I can't, you know, this just isn't right. So I, I had never written a novel, but I thought, well, I could give it a try. And the worst thing that happens is that I use a few, use up a few years of my life and then I get it out of my system. So I guess that was, those things were kind of the combination that let, that led me uh, think maybe I could continue the series. Sure. So now you, you're five into your version of Joe and his offsiders, aren't you? But you found a new way to approach it as well, because in the first book under your name, which was Spider Woman's Daughter, you introduced a new female protagonist. So you kind of freshened it up a little bit. Tell us about that strategy. Okay. Well, I, I, I'll go back a little bit. My father and I never talked about me continuing the series. You know, and I, I mean, you never, I, I, I couldn't imagine the world without my father. So I never raised the issue. And I think, you know, he was uh, very much his own man. He, once in a while, he would call me into his office and he would read me something maybe that he had just finished, you know, something he was, was working on. So, um, when I, when I thought maybe I could continue this series, I knew that I could never be Tony Hillerman. So I figured if this has any chance in the world of being a success, I need to think of some way to save the, the integral parts that fans loved, but at the same time, give it my own touch. And Dad had this minor character who I always had, had enjoyed, Bernadette Manuelito. And in his last book, Bernie has married Jim Chi. He doesn't show the, the wedding, but anyway, she's settled into that. And I think if my dad had written more books, he probably would have abandoned her to married life and babies and gone on with the two guys he loved. 
But I always thought she had more potential than just being the girlfriend who brings the coffee, the sweet young thing who has to get rescued. So my idea was that it was time for her to really become a full-fledged crime solver. So I thought with Spider-Woman's daughter, I thought I need to come up with a, a really big crime if I'm going to introduce her as being on, on the same level as the boys, I need to come up with a big crime for her to solve. And I don't want to say too much for maybe there are, I know there are people out there who've never heard of me or this series. And if you're like me, they like to start with the first book, which is Spider-Woman's Daughter. But anyway, I did come up with what I thought was a pretty big crime for Bernie to solve, Bernadette Manuelito, she's known as Bernie. So anyway, she solves the crime. And in the process, she also manages to rescue her husband, Jim Chi, who gets caught up and, and uh, endangered by the bad guys. So, yeah, and I wondered when I finished that book, I wondered, so dad's fans are so used to the guys being the ones who solve everything. What are they going to think about having a new girl who comes up and basically steals the spotlight in this book. But luckily, uh, my father's fans had big hearts and they took a chance on me and on Bernie and on Spider-Woman's daughter. And so that was uh, kind of the impetus for that first book. And then, you know, as a writer yourself, you know, as you're working on a book, you get other ideas that don't fit in that book, but you think these are pretty good. So you sort of file them away in part of your brain. And so that was what happened then with the with the other books in the series. As I was working on them, I'd get another idea and get another idea. And, and so it went. So you're very much a chip off the old block because every one of your Navajo series books has also been a New York Times bestseller. So congratulations on that. Well, thank I, like I said, it was just, it was the big hearts of the people who loved my dad, who took a chance on me. And now, amazingly, I'm, I, I hope that this would happen. I find people who read my books and then they say, so were there other books in this series? I say, oh, you should read Tony Hillerman. <laughs> <laughs> There's a treasure trove there for them to discover, isn't there, with 18 of them? <laughs> certainly, certainly. Look, the one that's the most recent, The Tale Teller, it drew its inspiration from a historic tragedy that affected the Navajo people. There's quite a lot of people in Australia and New Zealand who wouldn't be familiar with that history. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the key events that that book is anchored around. Oh, sure. I would be glad to. I think a lot of people, particularly in the United States, are familiar with what's called the Trail of Tears. And that was when so many of our uh, indigenous people were forced from their homeland and marched into uh, basically concentration camps. And a lot of those people lost their culture. They were never able to go back to their traditional homeland. Well, um, the, the Navajo uh, version of that event was called the Long Walk. And it, this was after the, the uh, Civil War in the United States. And uh, the Navajo people traditionally had been hunters and gatherers and farmers, and they had roamed the Southwest. And their lifestyle was they might steal some sheep from some people, or maybe not, maybe they didn't even think of stealing. They would just sort of round them up and put them to use. 
And as uh, Western expansion in the United States continued, there was less and less tolerance for this sort of lifestyle. And so the uh, U.S. government attempted to do some treaties with the Navajos to get them to become farmers. And But the, the government didn't understand that unlike some of the Eastern tribes, the Navajos were organized in bands. So they might make an agreement with one band and the head man would sign the agreement. And that band would follow that agreement. But other Navajos didn't know anything about the agreement. They would continue their, their traditional practices. And so eventually the uh, American government decided they should round up all of these rowdy Navajos and move them about 500 miles from their traditional homeland down to a place in southern New Mexico. And the idea was they, they would turn them into farmers. Well, the Navajo did not want to go, of course, and the army was was uh, very... At first they tried persuasion, that did not work at all, so then they... Uh, kill the livestock, burn the burn the farms, chop down all the fruit trees, and basically starve them out. So they, um, women, children, men, all kinds of people then were force marched. That was why they called it the Long Walk. Force marched down to this basically concentration camp. When they got there, there was no control for disease. There was there were inadequate food. The water was not suitable for farming. It was many thousands. I think I think they said about twenty percent of the Navajo people who were forced to go down to uh, Bosque Redondo died either either on the way or or down there. Well, eventually the government decided this experiment was not going to work, and so they called together some of the Navajo leaders. And they said, we have a deal for you. We're going to give you some prime farmland in Oklahoma, and we're going to move you there. And the Navajo leaders said, no, we don't. We, that's, not, that's not what we want. They said, just let us go back to our own, our own land. They said, even if you only give us one goat, that's where we belong. That was the land the holy people gave us. Let us go back there. We promise we're not, we're, we won't return to our battled ways and the army said, well, that land looks pretty useless. It's just desert, dry desert. Who wants to live there anyway? So the Navajo were the first of all the, the indigenous tribes in America that were allowed to return to their traditional homeland. So that event is it's, it's called the, the, long, the Long Walk Out and the Long Walk Back. And uh, one of the Navajo leaders... Was this is a long answer to your story, but it's it's such an important story, I think, in Native history that I'm I appreciate you giving me the, the time to tell it in my sort of white girl version here. Anyway, one of the leaders who signed the the, the peace treaty was a gentleman named Manuelito. Now, an interesting thing about that is that actually women had always been leaders in the Navajo society, but the army, of course, didn't recognize any women leaders back in the 1860s. So, but Manuelito's wife was a, a woman named Juanita, and Juanita also was a very highly respected Navajo leader. So there are many pictures of Manuelito and Juanita after they after Manuel, Manuelito signed the treaty. And in those pictures, Manuel, um, Juanita is wearing what's called a bil. It's a famous traditional Navajo dress, a woven dress, um, basically one piece, a simple design, very beautiful, very practical. Well, about 
five years ago, the dress that Juanita wore in those pictures that she had woven herself was displayed at the Navajo Museum in Window Rock, the National Navajo Museum. And something like 10,000 Navajo people came from all over the Navajo world, not only on the reservation, but Navajos who'd been living in Phoenix and Los Angeles and... Des Moines, all over the world, came to see that dress. I often think it's, I was raised as a Catholic, and it's like as if there was a relic of the Holy Cross that had been on display in our cathedral. I mean, people from throughout the Southwest would have come to see it. And, and it was the same with Juanita's dress. So and uh, when I started working on the Telltaler, it was the 150th anniversary of the signing of that treaty, which created the Navajo Nation. So I thought, I thought of that treaty and I thought of how the Navajo people came to see that dress and what an important, important relic it was of that very sad time in Navajo history. So then, because I write fiction, I thought, well, what if there was another, something else that Juanita had woven that had been in some collection of some museum or some collector and what if some generous soul decided that that dress should come back and be and be part of the Navajo Museum collection and then what if something happened and again because it's a mystery I don't want to say too much about it yeah. but anyway sort of the confluence of those events were what gave me the idea for the telltaler. I know that when, when I read fiction, and it's probably the same with you and the same with readers everywhere, besides a good story, I always feel more satisfied if I come away thinking that I've learned a little bit about history or a little bit about how some, some other person thinks or a little bit about science. So when I write my books, I always try to include a little bit of information like that besides, uh, and hopefully I can include it and also have the mystery keep moving along. Yeah, great. That's a great answer. Um, you mentioned, you know, just dis a little disparagingly, your white girl version of history. How did you, how do you handle, how did you become so well-versed in Navajo culture? Well, uh, I think everything is relative. I'd say I probably am well-versed for somebody who did not grow up with, with Navajo culture. I have, the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. Um, reading, I, I, I use, try to use all of the uh, resources that all of our fine libraries have. In Santa Fe, we have a, a wonderful, two wonderful museums. One is called the Wheelwright Museum of, of, of Native, Native American Art. And it originally was a museum specifically about Navajo culture. It was founded by one of the Navajo Atales, the singer medicine men, and a woman who had big connections with Navajo trading posts back in back at the turn of the turn of the of the 20th century. And the other thing I do is try to talk to as many Navajo people as I can. I mean, another good thing about living in the Southwest and a good thing about the Navajo culture itself is that they're the many Navajo people are very open and very eager to share what it is that makes their uh, their life way special with outsiders who have a, a, a legitimate interest and aren't aren't writing for exploitation are just kind of trying to help tell the story. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, the books, they are obviously all set in Navajo country, but 
you do focus on different geographic locations in, in different books, don't you? And I wondered, for somebody who'd never been to the Southwest, is there a way that they could visit and become you know, a little bit better informed? I mean, obviously not in the next few months, but when international travel resumes again, is, are there well-known ways that you can really um, get to know more about Navajo culture on the ground? Yes, yes, it's really not not that difficult. Um, when I when I was was uh, working on Spider Woman's Daughter, I also worked for a company called Road Scholar. I don't know if you they used to call them Elder Hostel, Elder Hostel, and then they they decided that all of us elders would rather have a, a more upscale name. Anyway, they do tours. Uh, I think they're I think they're about ten day tours into Navajo country. They also go to Zuni Pueblo, and they bring in uh, Navajo artists, Navajo historians to talk to the people who are on those groups. And it's a it's a, a way to uh, explore Indian country without having to drive yourself if you're if someone is interested in that. Uh, the as I mentioned, uh, part of the tale teller is set at the. Navajo Cultural Center in Window Rock. It's run by the tribes themselves. It offers a wonderful, wonderful introduction to Navajo culture. They have a, a video all about healing plants and how they're used both in in weaving, how they're used for um, for healing, and and you know also how just people can use them. If you have a sore throat and you want a cup of tea, it's a, a really interesting video. And then the museum itself tells the story of the Navajo people from their own perspective. I think Window Rock is the capital of the Navajo Nation, and if I were planning a planning a uh, a visit to Navajo land, I would start, I would start in Window Rock. Another place I would go would be the, the town of Tuba City, which is right on the border of Hopi land. And Tuba City has what's called the Interactive Navajo Museum. And in the, right when you come in the museum, they have a wonderful, another wonderful video that explains the Navajo origin story. And it's in Navajo and in English. And it just, it's just such a, really such a gift to us people who are curious about the Navajo culture. And then the, the museum is uh, arranged uh, as, as it would be if you were going into a Hogan and it talks about, oh, sheep and rodeo and the Navajo language and Navajo jewelry and Navajo education. Anyway, it's that's another one, wonderful place. It's the Navajo Nation has a good website for tourists, and I would highly encourage people who are interested in visiting to look at that. Canyon de Chez, Monument Valley. I mean, definitely put those on your list. Yeah, there there are many many resources. So yeah, and and it's like anything. The more you learn, the more uh, the more any kind of a, of a visit to, to Indian country will really mean more to you. That's lovely. I will make sure we put links to those places on, on the blog post so that people can follow through. That's wonderful. Look, turning to your wider career a little bit, you mentioned that you were a journalist before you became a novelist. Tell us a little about life before you became a full-time novelist. Well, okay. I I think having my my before my dad became a novelist, he also was a journalist. And I think 
I don't know if it's in your genes or if some of it is in, is in the environment. But, you know, when you grow up with a parent who is so passionate about about what they do, I think it just it, it certainly my dad's passion for journalism had an effect on me. So uh, what I know when I was growing up, I think like a lot of a lot of young people, I, I love to read. I love to write. And so when people would say to me, you know, so are you going to become a, a journalist like your dad or are you going to become a scientist like your mom? And I'd say, no, no, you know, I'm my own person. So I went to college and I took all kinds of courses. I took, I mean, anthropology and biology and music. And and luckily, when I was in school, there was something called a, a university university college major where you could put all those courses together and kind of get get out of school. But after about three years of doing that, it dawned on me that I did not want to be in school for another three years and then I might need to get a job someday. <laughs> so then I looked at all those credits and I had to admit that I really did love to write. And I loved um, sort of being on the cusp of finding out what was happening. And that's really the gift that journalism gives you. So I decided I would put all my care, all my credits in a basket and see if I could get a, a degree in journalism. And fortunately or unfortunately, at that point, my dad was head of the journalism department. And so, of course, he, he, I have to say, was a great dad because he never pressured me. But when I said, I think I'm going to major in journalism, he said, I think you'll really enjoy it. And I think that's, I think you, you have the right the right personality and the right set of skills to, to do that. So um, anyway, I got my degree in journalism and then I worked at the newspaper in Santa Fe for about 15 years. And uh, then I decided that I should, that I was, I had always thought it would might maybe be a good idea to be a mom. So I, I uh, got pregnant and was able to amazingly, um, uh, worked worked just part time while I was while I was was raising my son and I did some uh, I became the editorial page editor for both of our local papers here and I think a lot of people when you're in journalism people see your name they see your byline and they see that you know how to put a story together so I got some offers to do some nonfiction books so while I was working full time in journalism I did some travel books and uh, then. Uh, my my son was getting older and I'm thinking, golly gee, I'm going to have to put this kid through college. And as much as I loved journalism, I didn't love the salary. So I had a friend who had worked for a financial company doing investor, I don't know, investor communications. I thought, well, that doesn't sound as exciting as journalism, but it were sure, sure would be nice to be able to help this kid pay tuition. So I did, it was a venture capital company. I did that for a year, and that was when we had our first big recession. And of course, venture capital was the, one of the very first things that went down, and investor communications was one of the very first things that got cut. So then, I luckily I had been doing some freelancing, and I had done I had a, an offer to do a I had been doing restaurant reviews for the for both of the most of the newspapers. And one of the publishers said, why don't you put together a little restaurant guide? You know, I live in Santa Fe, which is one of the, or was one of the prime tourist destinations. We'll see what happens after, after COVID. So anyway, and Santa Fe has a lot of really fine restaurants. 
So I put together a little, that little book, it was called Santa Fe Flavors, and it did really well. And so then, and I love the editor I worked with there. It was a, a small publisher in Utah called Gibbsmith's, Gibbsmith Press. So then they said to me, uh, we'd like to do a, another book on Santa Fe Gardens. What do you think? And my, my mom had been a master gardener, and I'm not much of a gardener, but I appreciate a good garden. And I know how to interview people. I said, oh, sure, that would be fun. So my husband and I went out and we did this book. It was called Gardens of Santa Fe. And that was our really, Don and I's, our first experience working together on a, on a long-term project. And that book did really well too. And so in the meantime, because I had lost my other job, um, my I, I had a friend who knew something about the business of putting conferences together. And she said, why don't we do a, a writer's conference in Santa Fe? But instead of bringing in the, the traditional model for us out here in the boondocks is that you bring in some big, big guy like John Grisham and you pay him a ton of money. And then you get all your little New Mexico people who want to be writers to come and, and listen to him. And I, I said, well, you know, why don't we use my dad? I bet he would be happy to be a faculty member and he knows people and we know people. So we put, we used my dad for, for a couple of years as the keynote speaker and used his connections in the world of New Mexico writing and Southwest writing and did that, that writer's conference. This is kind of a long way of telling you how I got into fiction, but <laughs> anyway, through that writer's conference, uh, we brought in, I mean, not only did my dad do some workshops, but um, other pretty big name New Mexico writers, a guy named Michael McGarity, uh, Craig Johnson, who I don't was not well known then, but is well known now, a writer named Margaret Cole, who set her stories on the Arapaho Nation, um, and then some good nonfiction writers, Douglas Preston, was one of our one of our presenters, Hampton Sides, who's done a lot of fine, fine nonfiction books. Anyway, we had a good crew of folks. And at this point, I was happy writing nonfiction. I really was not thinking of going into novels, but listening to those people, uh, I realized afterwards when I got the idea for Spider Woman's Daughter, a lot of what they had to say about how to develop characters how to pace your stories, how to write dialogue, all those skills that you need as a fiction writer. I think listening to those people, some of their information kind of subliminally soaked into me. And so when I, when I was thinking of uh, writing, moving from nonfiction to fiction, a lot of that experience really came in handy. And the other thing that I didn't realize I was even learning that, but that I did learn from nonfiction was how to do, how to take care of a big project from beginning to end, how to, you know, which is totally different from journalism, you know, how to write a book that's, that's 200 pages instead of an article that's 2000 words, how to kind of uh, manage my time with that, uh, how to work with editors, how to, how, kind of how to walk that, that fine line that you walk as a, either fiction or nonfiction, which is when do you say, um, I agree with your, with your corrections, when do you say, give me some time to think about it, or when do you say, 
what else can we do? This just doesn't, this isn't the, the vision I have for the story. So I think all of that experience in nonfiction, although I didn't realize it at the time, really paid off for me when I made the switch to uh, writing fiction. Sure. So I, and is that Santa Fe Writers Festival still going? Has that become a re- no. continuing event? Well, after it, it was continuing, uh, when Spider Woman's Daughter came out, I was able to have that book at the festival. It, I was really so pleased with that. But then I realized that writing fiction, kind of teaching myself how to write fiction as I was writing fiction, was a big job. And so, no, my business, and at that time, my, my business partner, uh, who took care of all of the booking hotels and ordering the books and doing the contracts. She had she had also had a part-time job and she was ready to retire from that job. And she said, you know, let's just take a break. I said, okay. So we haven't, we still have our company and it could be that we'll resurrect it again. But I know after, I, we, we haven't been doing them for the last few years. Yeah, I, I know what you mean when you say learning how to write fiction is a big job. You don't really need to be distracted, do you? Look, turning to Anne as a reader, because we are the joys of binge reading, tell us a little about your reading taste and what you're enjoying at the moment. Well, let me see. One of the, one of the wonderful things about uh, getting invited to writers' conferences is that you have a chance to meet new writers that you would not have otherwise come across. Last year, I went up to uh, Jackson Hole, Hole, Wyoming for the Jackson Hole Writers Conference. And one of the other writers on the the program is a a wonderful, wonderful writer. I recommend her to all all of your listeners. Her name is Louisa Luna. And her first book was was called uh, Two Girls Down. And the second, I think, was called is called Girl Missing. Anyway, she is dynamite. They're kind of uh, sort of hybrid books between thrillers and mysteries because her, um, you know, with a, a regular mystery, your protagonist might not be in much danger, but hers always get their get their butts kicked every time. Anyway, she is a wonderful, wonderful writer. I, I love her books. I just finished a new book by another new writer named Chris Kelsey. And he writes books. They're set in Oklahoma in the 1970s. And he has a, a wonderful sheriff who really is a, he's a guy with a strong, strong moral compass who also has a strong affinity for bourbon. And you and and jazz, and you wouldn't think that that would go together, but he's just Chris Kelsey is another writer who deserves a lot, lot more attention. And I love, I love his books, and I would love to see both both uh, Kelsey's books and Luna's books on the Best Times, the New York Times bestseller list, and Amazon, and all those places where people looking for new books might go to find a new writer. Yes, it is sometimes a bit arbitrary, isn't it? The ones that make the headlines and the ones that don't. I know. And sometimes sometimes I look at those books and I think this book is here because people love this writer, but this book itself is not the, the writer's best work. So, yeah, it's... You know, it's a challenge to readers, I think, with so many books to choose from and so many books that are maybe overly hyped and so many other good books that don't 
don't rise to the top because people just don't know about them. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also uh, love to read a lot of nonfiction, particularly nonfiction that has to do with the, the life life on the on the reservation. There's a uh, a writer named uh, uh, Jim Christophic. He uh, grew up on the Navajo reservation, and uh, he just he he wrote a, wrote his first book was called Navajos Wear Nikes. It was published by the University of New Mexico Press. I'm sure because people can find anything anywhere, I'm sure people can find it. It's a wonderful, kind of funny and heartbreaking at the same time memoir of, of his early years. His, his, he just did a sequel to it. And I'm, I'm not remembering the name of it right away. And I wrote them down, but of course my, my notebook's in the other room. Anyway, both of his books, I think it's, maybe it's called Reservation Wild. Anyway, both he's a fine writer, and both of those books are, I would highly recommend them to anybody who's looking for a new voice and for a, a chance to learn a little bit more about the Navajos and the Southwest. We'll make sure we put links to those as well. So, all your time just talking about writers. <laughs> We're coming to the end of our time together. So, just circling around, pausing where we are and looking back down life's tunnel. Um, the way that you've done things, is there anything that you would change if you were doing it all over again? Well, if if I knew that I was going to be brave enough to take on this landmark series, I would have talked to more to my dad about it. And I would have said, you know, what do you do when you reach a point where you you need to move the action along, but you still want to be respectful of the the tone of the Navajo way of life, which is you don't rush things. You you know give things, give people time to say what they need to say. You 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 know respect a person's privacy, and if you have to go back eight times, you do that. How do you reconcile that with the pacing that you need for a modern mystery? And a million more questions I would have asked him if I had it to do over again. But then I think if I, I don't know if I would have had the, the courage to actually do it if I had talked to him about it, because I would have felt like it was such a, such a huge responsibility. So, I mean, that's one thing I would have done, done differently. I would have paid more attention to how to use commas properly. (laughs) (laughs) I think my editors would have appreciated that. I was going to say, isn't that what editors are for? Um, what do you think your dad would make of it? I mean, some men who are extremely successful, they have that sort of type A personality. They don't like to think about the fact that they might be uh, able to be displaced. Or uh, Do you think he would have been pleased? I think he would have been pleased because I know he had such affection for these characters. I mean, sometimes I think he... he um, enjoyed spending time with them more than he did with his six rowdy kids. I think he would be, and I, and also he had such, he took such delight when readers would come up to him and they would say, you know, I never read mysteries, but because of the, the, the setting and the cultural information in your books, I've, I love your books. And now I'm learning to enjoy other mysteries. I, Dad loved to hear that. I think he would be happy to think that these readers who loved his books are still able to see what Jim Jim Chi and Joe Leaporn are up to. Yes, I was touched by a comment that I read in that New York Times, but that he got more pleasure out of 
the, the Navajo children who came up to him and said they were enjoying the mysteries than all of the rest of the popular acclaim. And, you know, one thing that really tickles me when I am doing talks, say, in Farmington or at Gallup on the, you know, the border towns to the Navajo, Navajo Nation. And after the talk, a, a Navajo mother and, the, and her daughter and her mother, the three generations will come up and they'll say, could we have our picture taken with you? It just <laughs> makes me feel like a hero. <laughs> That's lovely. <laughs> so what is next for Anne, the writer? I think, I believe that you've got a sixth Navajo mystery stargazer that's in the editing process now. What else have we got coming up for 2020? One of the the good things about about the coronavirus is that I've had more time to work on Stargazer. And I am I'm finishing another another rewrite of it. And I think it's just so much, so much better than it would have been if I hadn't had this quiet time to focus on it. So uh, that that book will be out next year, and after that, I'm I there's a character in Stargazer who I really like, and I'm thinking I may pull her into the into the next book. Also, I I try to give um, there are basically three main characters in the series, and I try to give each of them sort of their time in the sun, and so now it's Jim Jim Chi's turn. So I'm thinking of a a good story for Jim Jim Chi, and I've hinted at it a little bit in Stargazer. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting to work on that, and I'm looking forward to when I can go back out to the Navajo Nation and visit some of the places that really inspire my stories. It's funny to think, isn't it, that if this series has been going 50 years, Joe Leaphorn must be getting very old. Um. <laughs> well, that, as you know, is the wonderful thing about fiction, that we don't, our characters don't have to age at the same rate that we age. <laughs> yeah, I figure if Joe were 20, now he would be 70. But I think from the way uh, he, he acts in uh, The Blessing Way, he's probably more like 30. But, you know, he's a, he's a tough old bird. So I expect him to be around for at least a few more books. <laughs> That's lovely. Now, I can tell that you love interacting with your readers just from what you've already said. But where can they find you online? Well, I have a, a, a Facebook page, and I, which is... Um, Anne Hillerman author. And I, I'm, I have to confess, I'm not as good at Facebook as I ought to be. But as soon as I'm done with these revisions of Stargazer, I'm going to, going to get back and give it more attention. And then I have a website and I'm better at keeping that up. And the website is just my name, Anne with an E, Hillerman.com. Wonderful, Anne. We'll make sure all those links are there in the blog post as well. So, look, it's been wonderful talking to you and it has opened the window on a world that a lot of us didn't know very much about. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure for me too. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading.
The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.